Will you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation this morning? Revelation chapter 1. This morning we will be examining verses 9 through 20. I've entitled my discourse to you, A Vision of the Ascended Christ. It's a marvelous text that gives us a deeper understanding of the Lord of the church. Before we read the passage, I would like to introduce the subject by having you think with me a bit about the direction that we see our country going. And you will see the implications of this in a moment as we look at the text. Many Christians share my deep concern about the direction of our nation. The U.S. has now elected the most non Christian, anti-Christian president in the history of our nation. All the more reason for us to pray for this man and for his family, that they will come to a saving knowledge of Christ and that the church will be protected from them and their administration. But it is deeply troubling to witness the mass idolatry of the new president. Thousands hail him as the, quote, Messiah. It is absolutely astounding to see the demagoguery that is sweeping the nation. If you read the information on the Internet and on the Internet and the blogs that are there, you will see, for example, one of his popular slogans is we are the ones we've been waiting for, which is really translated. I am the one that you have been waiting for. He is likened to the transfiguration of Christ. You read blasphemous slogans and signs that say, quote, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Obama be thy name. Any change or thy change shall come. Thy will be done. We even have public school children chanting. He is the Alpha and Omega. The Chicago Sun-Times is quoted to say, we just like to say his name. We are considering taking it as a mantra And one of their writers says, he's not just an ordinary human being, but indeed an advanced soul. And of course, Oprah Winfrey, who is by and large a spokesman for much of our culture, says this, quote, we're here to evolve to a higher plane. He is an evolved leader. He has an ear for eloquence and a tongue dipped in the unvarnished truth, end quote. There's a new album that is out that's called Songs of Obama. And even Rick Warren, who is called America's pastor, praises Obama for inviting a homosexual Episcopal bishop to pray at the inauguration. And he said this, and I quote, President-elect Obama has again demonstrated his genuine commitment to bringing all Americans of goodwill together in search of common ground, I applaud his desire to be the president of every citizen, end quote. What an empty delusion, dear friends. The word of God says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. Such idolatry is an abomination before God. And of course, idolatry is... When a man worships something other than the true and the living God, an idol is any object of trust 
that we place our faith in. The psalmist said in Psalm 31, 6, that these are vain idols. And Jonah said the same thing as he recounted his experience in the belly of the great fish. He called them vain idols, literally lying vanities, empty deceptions. And I grieve over the idolatry that is sweeping the nation. Like lemmings, the American public, driven by greed and immorality and ignorance, is mindlessly marching over the cliff of destruction, deceived into believing the empty platitudes of hope and change, believing that somehow this will result in a better life. How I wish the people of our country and the people of the world could understand who the true Messiah is, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, and how I wish they could understand the passage that we have before us here this morning. Beloved, here we are going to see in verses 9 through 20, the Lord Jesus Christ revealing himself in a vision to the Apostle John. We're going to have a vision of the ascended and glorified Christ. Here will be the Lord's description of himself. Here the glorified Lord of the church appears to John, the very one whom John had previously known so well some 65 years earlier. What a magnificent yet terrifying reunion this must have been. Here, dear friends, the true Messiah establishes his divine credentials to John and to all of the recipients of this revelation, because there must be no equivocation with respect to the authority of the one who is about to reveal the future and return someday as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here, the Lord himself is going to provide a magnificent description of his glorious character and a detailed portrayal of his infinite perfections. Beloved, you must understand that what we are going to look at this morning is the clearest contrast of his earthly suffering with his ascended glory that we can find anywhere in Scripture. And it's from the Lord's very mouth. And this, dear friends, is how we should see him. We should not see Christ as a babe in a manger. We should no longer see him as wearing a crown of thorns. We should no longer see him as hanging on a cross, but now we must see him in the resplendent glory of his majesty as the ruler of the universe. This is the one in whom we should trust, for he alone is the Messiah, the only Lord and Savior, the only hope for salvation for mankind. Now, you will recall that this is the Apocalypsis Jesu Christum. Literally, the uncovering given to us by Jesus Christ, something that is being laid bare, something that has been concealed in the past is being unveiled. That is the title of this book. And we have learned in the prologue in verses one through eight that this is a divine disclosure of previously hidden truths given to Jesus Christ from God the Father as a description of the Son's glorious inheritance from the Father. Events that are now imminent, the next things that will happen in the prophetic timetable, 
This was communicated to John by an angel and then from John to give testimony to all of the bondservants of Christ. We have learned that it is a written document that offers a special blessing to all of those who read it and hear it and heed it and its contents. And in it, the triune God offers grace and peace to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, according to verse five, who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And the theme of this book is found in the first prophetic oracle in verse seven. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And the veracity of what will follow in this divine Disclosure is affirmed by its ultimate author, God the Father, who affixes his signature to the prologue, stating in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now follow with me as I read the text before us this morning. Beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle and his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I've divided this text into four categories that I hope will be helpful for you as we endeavor to understand its meaning. First, we will look at the circumstances of the vision. In other words, the events surrounding this vision. Secondly, the commencement of the vision. Or in other words, the beginning, the introductory scene of the vision that the Lord will give him. Then thirdly, the consequence of the vision. 
That is the effect that it had upon John and God's remedy for that effect. And then finally, fourthly, the commission of the vision. That is the divine purpose and marching orders that God gives the beloved apostle. First, we see the circumstances of the of the vision in verse nine. And here, dear friends, we see both the humility and the suffering of the great apostle. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, historically, you must understand that Christianity at first was merely considered another sect of Judaism. And therefore, it was legal within the Roman Empire. Official persecution didn't really begin until the reign of Nero in the 60s. You will recall that he burned much of Rome because he had such an appetite for architecture and building. He did this on July 19th, A.D. 64. And of course, he had to blame it on someone. And so he blamed it on the Christians. And he executed many Christians at that time, including Peter and Paul. But there is no historical or biblical evidence of widespread persecution until the time of Domitian's reign, which began in 81 A.D. and finished in 96 A.D. For example, in in Paul's letters to the Ephesians, to uh, to the Colossians, as well as his first and second letters to Timothy, all of which were written in the 60s. There's no indication of persecution. All were relatively healthy churches at that time. But by the time we come to the text before us, the book of Revelation, by the time of John's writings, these churches had seriously declined, as we are going to see. We're going to see. And according to tradition, John left Palestine for Asia Minor at the time of the Jewish revolt against Rome in A.D. 66 through about 70, somewhere in there. And John's ministry in this region in Asia Minor resulted in severe persecution, along with all of the churches in that region. And by now, Domitian's hatred for Christians has spread all the way to Asia Minor where these seven churches existed. Now, Christians were mainly lower class people, and therefore they were despised by the Roman aristocracy. They were considered disloyal to Rome because they refused to worship Caesar as the supreme uh, authority. They refused to um, worship the pantheon of, of Roman gods. And they even undermined, at least in the Romans' mind, the hierarchical structure of Roman society because they believed that all men were equal and therefore they were opposed to slavery. So John is exiled to this tiny island of Patmos because he believes these things. This was an island that was about 30 miles south of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. And he is banished here because he's a member and a spokesman for this illegal religious sect. Now, Patmos was a Roman penal colony, an island, as were many others in that region. It was a horrible place to be. 
There we know, according to other historical records and tradition, that people were forced to work in mines. In fact, the early church fathers indicated this was the fate of John. There was very little food or clothing. They were forced to sleep on the ground. And of course, this would have been torture for anyone, but especially for a 90-year-old man. And so here in verse 9, he describes himself, rightfully so, as a fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. As a footnote, obviously the fullness of the kingdom has not yet come. And here we see that the church was in desperate need of encouragement. We know that at least one pastor, according to Revelation 2.13, has been martyred. We know that all of the apostles have been martyred except for John. And so you can imagine what would have been going on in his heart, knowing the persecution of the churches that he loved and knowing his own fate. So he says that he's a fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom. The kingdom here includes the sphere of God's sovereign rule over the redeemed that exists between Christ's first and second comings. And here John describes his suffering as a kingdom citizen as he as he awaits the reign of King Jesus, as he perseveres until he returns. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter one and verse two where. Verses 1 and 2, where the writer says that we must run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. And of course, his only crime, as he tells us here, was his faithful preaching of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And beloved, it is against this dark backdrop of persecution that the brilliant light of the future messianic messianic kingdom will shine all the more. And what a blessing this divine revelation would have been to the Apostle John and to the churches that will later receive it and to all of the churches henceforth. In verse 10, he tells us, I was in the spirit. Now, you must understand this does not mean that he was asleep and having a dream. The verb here literally indicates that I came to be in the spirit. It denotes an entrance into an unusual state. This would have been a supernaturally induced state beyond our comprehension, whereby God takes his messenger and allows him to gaze into the invisible spiritual world and see things that God would want him to see and to understand. Luke used the term ecstasy, which means trance, to describe what happened to Peter, as you will recall, in Acts chapter 10. This was also the same experience of Ezekiel, as well as the Apostle Paul. So he says, I was in the spirit. And notice, he says, on the Lord's day. This is a reference to Sunday, a phrase found only here in the New Testament. It was also the same phrase that is found in other writings of ancient Christians in that very region just a short time after the writing of the apocalypse. It is not a reference to the eschatological day of the Lord, as some believe that day of judgment referred to by the Old Testament prophets. 
There's a number of reasons why I would argue against that. The most important of which is that grammatically the phrase the Lord's Day is a very different construction than the eschatological day of the Lord that is used elsewhere, even here in the book of Revelation. Now, it became customary for Christians to refer to Sunday as the first day of the week because Christ's resurrection occurred on Sunday, the Lord's Day. It was also customary for the Lord's Supper to be observed on Sunday, the first day of the week, as we read in Acts 20 and verse 7. And it is also fitting here, this idea of Sunday, because this is the first of the first part of the vision that John will receive pertaining to Christ's present ministry in his church. Now, notice the striking way the Lord approaches John in verse 10. He says, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. This was a startling, dramatic authoritative sound that obviously got his attention. And this, of course, is reminiscent of the events surrounding the giving of the law at Sinai. When you will recall in Exodus 19, they heard a very loud trumpet sound. And you will recall that it terrified the people as God descended upon the mount with thunder and lightning and flashes in a thick cloud. This was also the experience of Ezekiel when God ushered him into an ecstatic state, as we read in Ezekiel 3.12, when he heard a great rumbling sound behind him. Now here in Revelation 1.10, John hears something behind him, and it is a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. A loud voice is used throughout the book to denote the profound importance of what was about to be said. And trumpet calls are used throughout Scripture to announce important events as well as to assemble God's people and prepare them for some special announcement or some special event. And in verse 11, we read that this loud voice is saying, Write in a book what you see. Write in a biblion, a, a scroll. This would have been a scroll made of papyrus material, made from a plant uh, grown in Egypt. It would not have been the more expensive parchment made from animals. He says, write what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, this is the first of 12 commands that John will receive to write what the Lord will reveal to him. And these seven churches evidently were the most representative of the unique spiritual situations described in each of their respective letters. But these were also very prominent cities in that region, each one being a postal district in Asia Minor. And they circled clockwise from where the messengers of the book would eventually arrive at Miletus on the coast. And from there, the messengers would travel north, first to Ephesus, and then make their way around the seven churches. As we will learn, a messenger from each church would have presented the scroll to his church. They would have read it and probably made a copy of it. Then the remaining messengers would leave for their respective churches with the original copy and repeat the process. So these are the circumstances of the vision. Secondly, 
Notice the commencement of the vision detailed here in verses 12 through 16. This is the beginning, the introductory scene preceding the actual vision. Verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. This symbolism can be understood by the common usage of lichnius, the term for lampstands, which was merely a word to describe the stands for portable oil lamps of that day. But as we see in verse 20, in this context, they are emblems of each of the seven churches in their respective cities. Each local assembly having the responsibility to emanate the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. And may I remind you, dear friends, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, that the church is to appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. These seven golden lampstands, therefore, symbolize the witness of God's people to a Gentile world, to a lost, dark world. A witness that is reflected here in the seven branched golden lampstands, even the ones that we saw in the tabernacle. We know that there was one set that stood outside and one that stood inside the veil, as we read in Exodus 25. And the same idea is also found in Zechariah's vision. In Zechariah 4 and verse 2, we read of a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. The seven spouts indicating an unlimited supply of that which would bear witness of the glory of God. And we see that there are seven of them. The number seven is always the number of completeness. And thus, these seven churches symbolize the various kinds of churches that will exist throughout the church age. And as we study them, we will see that the various difficulties and areas of sin in each of those churches can be manifest in each and every church that has existed from that day to this. And next, now, we are going to see the ascended Lord of the church. And he's going to be seen standing in the midst of those who are to bear witness of the light of his glory and grace. He is the one who indwells each of us as we are all united together in the body of Christ. And he's going to use nine descriptive phrases to describe the glory of his person and the nature of his works in his church. And each title, beloved, will will offer hope and comfort to the discouraged apostle and certainly to the seven churches and all from that day to this. It reminds us all of his holiness and his sovereign authority over them. Notice the first description in verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. We know this is a messianic title. We read it in Daniel 7:13, and it is the same text Jesus had applied to himself some 60 years earlier in Mark 13:26. One like a son of man. This indicates that when John turns around, he sees a human form. And ultimately, he sees the glorified Lord, Jesus Christ. 
This is also a title used in John 5 and Acts 17 to describe Jesus' authority to judge his church, an authority that was given to him by the Father, which he will do in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. This is also a title that the early church used to depict the Lord's suffering, which is also in view here in the context of the seven churches. Notice the second description the Lord gives of himself in verse 13. He says that he is clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. Now, this is a description of the attire worn by the high priest of the Old Testament. And here, of course, it pictures the Lord Jesus Christ as our faithful, our great high priest. You will recall that it is Christ alone who could offer up sacrifice and make atonement for sin. He alone is the mediator between God and man. Hebrews 7.25 says that he always lives to make intercession for us. Those are the priestly duties. He alone can transform sinners into saints and bring us into the very presence of a holy God. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter two, verse 17, he had to make he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, I'm sure these eternal truths resonated within the hearts of the people later on as they heard these descriptions being given to them. No doubt they recalled as well what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, come what may, we have a high priest who is intimately involved in our lives, who knows everything about what we are struggling with. And what, a, what an enormous comfort these truths must have been to those suffering saints of those days. The third description in verse 14, we read that his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. Here now, John turns from describing his attire to his actual appearance as a person. White is the idea of that which is brilliant and blazing and bright, symbolizing both his glory and his holy purity. This is also the appearance Daniel saw in Daniel 7 and verse 9. A description of the ancient of days, God the Father. And isn't it interesting? Now, here it is applied to the Son that is once again giving us an understanding of Christ's deity. That, that like the Father, He is the eternal, pre-existent Christ. And here the seven churches are reminded, once again, of the infinite glory and purity of their God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who indwells His church, the body of Christ. The fourth description of the ascended Christ in verse 14 tells us that his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, this is a description that we will see repeated once again in chapter 2, verse 18 and chapter 19, verse 12. 
And the source of this expression is found in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 6, when he beheld the pre-incarnate Christ. And there Daniel describes him saying, his body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now, beloved, as we come here to John's description in verse 14, we see the text conveying to us the fierceness of the Lord's wrath against his enemies and the penetrating eyes of his divine omniscience that has the ability to peer through all of the walls of rebellion and deception and to pierce through every man's heart and to lay bare all the, the all of the deceit and all of the sin and expose man's wickedness for what it is. Beloved, this is the Lord of the church. This is the Lord of our church. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter four, verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare. To the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Pity the church that violates his word. Pity the church that is ashamed of the gospel. Pity the tares that are among the wheat that corrupt the purity of the church. And pity the wolves in sheep clothing that would devour the sheep. The Lord Jesus Christ sees it all. And he warned in Matthew 10, verse 26, there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Beloved, he judges all of the affairs of every man and every church. And there is never a day that that truth is not absent from my mind. The fifth description, verse 15 and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. You must understand here, these people would have understood this very clearly. You see, in ancient days, a king's feet symbolized authority. They always sat upon elevated thrones. And if you came into the presence of the king, when you looked up at the king, you would see his feet. Most of the time, even the bottoms of his feet. And every subject would realize that they are beneath the king. And also, we know that feet in the New Testament symbolize movement. We see this in a number of passages in Luke 179, in Acts 5:9, Romans 3:15, Romans 10:15, and Hebrews 12:13. So this denotes Christ's moving in the church, his involvement in his church. What a precious thought to know that the Lord is present with us now. He is present with us when we're meeting corporately. He is present with us when we are alone, even in our closet of prayer. He is always moving in our midst. There is no escaping him. And we're thankful that that is so. So this emphasizes here the purity as well and the judgment of the Lord as seen in similar descriptions in Ezekiel 1, as well as in Daniel 6, or Daniel chapter 10 and verse 6. 
And we read here that his feet were like burnished or in other words, gleaming bronze. The idea here is that it is as if he is looking at his feet and it is still glowing hot from the furnace, indicating its utter refinement, the utter absence of any impurity. And so the intention here is to communicate Christ's movement among the churches for the purpose of of purifying them. And we know that sometimes that happens through divine chastening. And through discipline in the church. Beloved Christ is serious about the purity of his church. And he has the authority to judge those who trifle with his word. Those who wink at sin. Those who trivialize the worshiping of the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that are inappropriate. And we have a sixth description then in verse 15. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now we later see the angelic hymns drawing from this imagery in chapter 14, verse 2, and chapter 19, verse 6. And the source of this symbol is also found in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2, where Ezekiel sees and he hears the glory of the God of Israel returning to his millennial temple in Jerusalem after his second coming. And there we read, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. You will recall that is the opposite direction from which he departed because of Israel's apostasy. He's coming from the east and his voice, Ezekiel says, was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. Now, of course, John was familiar with the sound of many waters on that tiny little island. He could hear the waves banging against the rocks constantly, especially in a time of storm, a sound that is deafening, attesting to enormous power. So here, the sound of the Lord's voice symbolizes the same. It symbolizes infinite power and authority that cannot be silenced, cannot be drowned out by any other sound. This was the force behind John's commission now to write the revelation of Jesus Christ. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you will recall that God commanded us to listen to my beloved son. And we hear his voice through the inspired and infallible record of his word. For this reason, we are to preach the word with authority and thus release its power to accomplish the purposes of God. Like the mighty roar of Niagara Falls, the voice of the Lord is the absolute voice of authority, one that that excels the sound of any other voice. And the seventh description in verse 16 We read that in his right hand he held seven stars. And that is explained in verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now this is the only description that does not draw directly from the Old Testament. However, its imagery does parallel other Old Testament passages. The idea of a right hand, his right hand, is a common expression in the Old Testament that denotes God's power and control. And the angels here can be translated messengers. These are not angelic beings. 
as some might think. Angels are never involved in church leadership, nor do they sin and repent as these messengers are exhorted to do in numerous passages to follow along with their congregations. So the symbol of holding these seven stars in his right hand is one of authority and control over these messengers who would have probably been elders or the pastors of these churches and thereby he would also have the authority and the control over the churches they represented. Now, these would have been men under divine authority and control who came to visit John on the Isle of Patmos to receive the scroll and disseminate its contents to their respective churches. Truly a solemn and sacred responsibility. And we have an eighth description here in verse 16. We read that out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. We see this used elsewhere in Revelation 2, verse 12 and 16, and also in chapter 19, verse 15. And beloved, this depicts his fierce judgment against his enemies who exist primarily within the church. And you must remember that our greatest enemy is always from within. Counterfeit teachers. Wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, shepherds who are dressed up like pastors. They look like pastors, but they're not. Tares as well. Unbelievers that pose as Christians, many of them unwittingly so. And even divisive and carnal, immature saints within the church. Now, we also see this same imagery in Isaiah chapter 11. And verse four, where the Messiah is depicted as the warrior king, the, the, the one who will righteously rule in millennial glory over all of the nations. And he will do so in with unrivaled force there in 11 verse four of Isaiah. We read that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So this, again, is depicting his fierce judgment over his enemies or against his enemies. And the word sword here in verse 16 is romphia in the original language. And that was a word to describe the a very large bladed sword, a double edged sword that cavalrymen would use on horseback in warfare. So here John sees the ascended Lord of the church as the invincible warrior who can slay his enemies with merely the pronouncement of a word. And the ninth description is in verse 16 as well. At the end, he says, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, you must know that this was a familiar sight for John, having seen the resplendent brilliant, dazzling light of the glory of God emanate from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw that along with Peter and James some 65 years earlier. This, beloved, was the Shekinah, the same glorious light that blinded Saul on the road to Damascus before he became Paul. And here the aging apostle sees a preview of the glory of God. He sees the ineffable glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. He sees the ascended, glorified Lord of the church. A glory that is to be 
refracted and reflected by every member of the body of Christ, you and me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, in other words, the glorious light of the gospel, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, literally privy pots, something that is indispensable. There's no glory in us. We have this treasure in earthly earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. You know, Paul describes believers as heavenly luminaries in Philippians 2 verse 15. And here in verse 16 of Revelation 1, we see Christ as the ultimate source of spiritual light and holiness. Like, like the sun that reflects off of the moon. And indeed, we are to be the light of the world that, that reflects. We are to be those who emanate and bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ the ultimate source of light, offering hope to a dark world. Now, child of God, you must see this. This is just a magnificent scene that introduces all of the vision that is about to come. He sees a glimpse of the ascended Christ and his respective functions in his church. I mean, we can already begin to experience the blessing that is promised in verse 3, right? As we read it, as we hear it, as we heed it, as we grasp the reality of the one who we worship. He is the divine authority and judge as we summarize this. He is the one that has suffered and died for his own. He is our great high priest who has made the final sacrifice for sin with his own blood, who sympathizes and intercedes for his own. He is the pre-existent eternal, self-existent, transcendent God of the universe. He is the one that is pure and holy. He is the one whose penetrating eye of divine omniscience can see with perfect clarity the heart of every man and will judge accordingly. He is the one that moves through his church and enforces his holy standard, seeking purity in his church. He is the one whose word cannot be silenced or ignored. He is the one who has authority over these seven messengers and the churches that they represent. And he is the invisible, invincible warrior with power to defeat all of his enemies, both inside and outside of the church. He is the one who will return with power and great glory to judge the wicked of the world. These magnificent descriptions set the stage for the revelation that he will receive. So we've seen the circumstance and the commencement of the vision. Thirdly, the consequence of the vision in verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Here we see John is absolutely overwhelmed and overcome with what he saw. The, the language here indicates a lifeless stupefaction. It's it, when a person falls prostrate to the ground in, in sheer terror. 
And such, of course, is the reaction of every person in Scripture who has ever had a glimpse of the glorified Christ, of the glory of God. This makes sense, does it not? I mean, whenever a sinner stands in the presence of the blazing holiness of God, he is exposed for who he is. And whenever we're exposed in such a way, our guilt is undeniable. So unlike the many charlatans who brag about seeing God face to face as if they met an old high school friend and had a few laughs, unlike those who would have us believe those lies, John collapsed in reverent and paralyzing fear. For as the writer of Hebrews says in verse 12 and 29, our God is a consuming fire. In verse 17, we read that he laid his right hand upon me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the original language, ego, a me. It's the name of deity. We see it in the Old Testament. It is the personal covenant name of God. It is the name that is rooted in the tetragrammaton, the four letters, Yahweh translated Lord. Now, John had heard this name used before, the name I am. He heard it and he recorded it in John 8, verse 58, when Jesus said, Before Abraham came to be, I am, ego me. This was the same name that he heard Jesus use to comfort him along with the other disciples when they saw him walking on the Sea of Galilee. You will recall in Matthew 14, at that time, Jesus saw them and he said, I am, stop fearing. Very simple. What an amazing scene here. To be sure, this was the same God-man whose breast John once laid his head upon some six decades earlier at the Last Supper. Do not be afraid, he says. I am the first and the last. Again, another title that God uses of himself in the Old Testament, describing his eternal nature. Verse 18, and the living one, living one, a precious title, a common description of God in both the Old and New Testament. I am the living one and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So don't be afraid. I'm the one who is life. I'm the one who decides who will die and who will not, and so forth. And here the Lord comforts John with the assurance of eternal life. Essentially, is saying, as we look at it in the original language with the grammar, he's saying, basically, life is my very nature. I am the uncaused, pre-existent, self-existent, eternal God. Literally, he says, I became dead. You must understand, as God, he could never die. He could only die by becoming man so that he could become the propitiation for our sins. Peter describes this in 1 Peter 3.18 when he said Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see, only in the Lord's humanness could he die, never in his deity. And that's what he's saying here. And then he says to him, I love this, and behold... In other words, look upon me with sheer amazement. Behold, but now I am alive 
forevermore. Therefore, he says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. Death and Hades are synonymous terms describing the grave. And of course, a key symbolizes something that gives one access as well as authority. So he's saying here, I have the power to give life. And I have the power to consign men to a permanent death or to release them from it. Because I have gained victory over death. I have the keys to it. And no one can be death's prisoner unless they choose to be so. And with these profound words of comfort, he commissions John finally the commission of the vision in verse 19. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. I love it when the Lord gives me very clear divisions of that which I am to preach. I love it when He gives me an outline because then I know with confidence that it is the right outline. And here He gives us a very simple three-part division of the book of Revelation, one that will help us understand the book. First of all, I want you to write the things which you have seen. This is real easy to understand. This is the past vision of the glorified Christ uh, that John had just seen, recorded here in verses 10 through 16. And then I want you to write the things which are. This is a reference to the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 that detail specific conditions of not only those churches in John's day, but all Churches that have existed from that day and all of the events surrounding that up until chapter four and verse one. So I want you to write the things which are. And then thirdly, I want you to write the things which shall take place after these things. In other words, the prophetic events detailed in chapters four through twenty two. These are events that will take place after the church is removed. In fact, from chapter 4 on, you never see the church again on earth. It's always in heaven. So, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place. Beloved, may I challenge you this morning as we close our time together, especially those of you who... Know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you see Christ afresh today in all of his ascended glory in the manner in which he has described himself? And therefore experience the blessing that is promised to you. And may I ask you to do something else? You know, the Lord gives all of this information with respect to the details of his person all of these symbols, he gives this to John to establish the, 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 the scene, kind of set the stage for all that God is going to give him subsequently. Will you allow that same scene to prepare your heart? Will you allow yourself to meditate on the glorious truths of the resurrected, glorified, ascended Christ so that you too can be prepared for what you are going to hear over the months to come. Prepare your hearts to hear and heed the revelation as we read in verse 3. And may the light of the truth of the gospel of Christ 
never be extinguished from our lampstand here at Calvary Bible Church. And finally, for those of you who do not know Christ as Savior, for those of you who have refused to repent and believe in Him and bow to Him as the only Savior and Lord, may I encourage you with all of my heart to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ before it is too late. And He will save you from your sins. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these eternal truths. May they resonate within our heart and also within our minds that we may understand that which You would want us to understand in our study to come. Thank You for condescending to our lowly estate so that we could grasp some of the marvels of Your person and of Your work. Lord, I pray as well for those who do not know You as Savior. We pray that by the power of Your Spirit, You will convict them of their hypocrisy, of their rebellion. And Lord, may today be the day they experience the miracle of the new birth because today can be the day that they repent and believe in You. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.